0: The following message is from the church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, as we said a few times up to this point, uh, tonight is a bit of a different Sunday for us in that this is our family worship Sunday. We do this every fifth Sunday throughout the year. So tonight, I am going to speak a little bit more briefly than I typically would. Now, during this time, as I said, we work worked through books of the Bible, and we're going to be studying Matthew 28, 11 through 20, finishing our study of Matthew's gospel. Now, before we jump into that, I have a picture for you. Let's throw this picture up on the screen. Oh, man. You know who that is, Jude? So, this is Jude at about two weeks old. Jude is my oldest son. He turned eight in August. This was... Part of the, uh, the newborn picture package, you know, first parents do, the first child, you get the whole package and you get all the pictures, that sort of thing. When you get to like the third child, you just forget things like that sometimes. <laughs> this was right about the time, two weeks in, to having a, a son, to, to being a parent, we sort of reached the, we, we we're beginning to grasp what we've gotten ourselves into phase of the early days of parenting. I remember we were coming home from the hospital and uh, we had Jude in the back seat. You know, it's so wild. You go there with two people and you leave the hospital, two, and then you know, one tucked down deep, and then you leave the hospital, and that empty car seat for the first time is full of, of a little person. It's so wild. We were, we were going down 385 down to Simpsonville, and I remember I looked over to Emily and she was just crying and like had been crying for a while. I was, you know, happily driving down the interstate, and Emily's just weeping, like, we we have a baby now. We, God has entrusted us this little soul. What are we to do with ourselves? You know, kind of thing. And I remember thinking, goodness, two, three weeks into, you know, having Jude. You know, the boy who made me a father. How on earth are we supposed to do this? What on earth are we supposed to do? Now what was sort of the conclusion that we came to? Like, we'd, we'd done all the showers. We'd done all the things. We'd had the baby. We had this amazing, incredible experience having this child, a life-changing moment. Like truly, it's, a, it's an otherworldly kind of joy that gets in your bones, you know? And I remember we got home and we were like, the dust is settled, now what? Do I, do, am I to develop like this insatiable urge to grill? Now is that like what's next for me? Or like, you know, new balances and <laughs> whatever else and tell horrible jokes? Is this what's next for us? Now I think about, the experience that the disciples have over the final weeks of the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples see their friend Jesus, tell them at the Last Supper that they're going to ultimately abandon him, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be delivered up and given over to death, but not to fear because he is going to come back to life. He's going to be resurrected. And what happens exactly that? The Gospel of Matthew Chapter 27 and into chapter 28 tells us that Jesus is crucified, he's dead, and he's buried. He rests on the Sabbath, and then Sunday morning, Jesus exits the grave. Jesus literally, actually, for real, bodily, comes back to life, just as he told his disciples he would. You can almost imagine the disciples, they see Jesus, they, they encounter Jesus, and their question is, now what? What would you have us to do now, Jesus? You've done all the things that you said you were going to do. You've achieved the victory that you promised you would. Now what? What are we called to do? (laughs) Right, Ruthie? And for us as a church, we've studied Matthew's gospel. And since the fall of 2017, we have looked Sunday after Sunday after Sunday at all of these amazing things that Jesus does. Jesus calms storms and he casts out demons and he heals people. And he gives these amazing teachings that are unparalleled in human history, world-changing, literally. Jesus dies and he's resurrected and we get to the end of Matthew's gospel as a church. And the question for us is now what? What are we to do in light of all of the things that Jesus has said and has done? And I think this scripture, what we're about to read here in just a moment, answers exactly that question for us. So once again, let's look at Matthew chapter 28. We'll start in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests... All that had taken place. Now the they there is a reference to what happened just prior to this. Jesus has commissioned uh, the women who were at his uh, tomb, who discovered the empty tomb. He commissioned them to go tell the disciples the good news. Christ is risen again. Jesus is back to life. And so while they were going, while this group of messengers has been sent out, we're told that the guard goes into the city and tells the chief priests all that had taken place. And remember the guards in chapter 27 are actually sent, it's like an extra set of guards, are sent to the tomb to make sure that nothing fishy happens. To make sure that the disciples don't come stealing Jesus' body and start making claims that Jesus has risen from the dead. So they go to the chief priests and they say, we have some news for you, chief priests. When they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So again, last week we saw that the guards were dispatched to ensure that nothing unseemly took place, that the disciples didn't come steal the body. And then the resurrection happens. We're told that the guards fall down as though dead. They're so shook at the sight of the empty tomb and the angel whose appearance is like lightning and snow, we're told. So the guards, they go back to the religious leaders, they say, listen, this is crazy, but an angel rolled the stone away and Jesus, he is not there anymore. And so the religious leaders, you can imagine, get the sinking pit in their stomach. But instead of seeking Jesus out, instead of going to verify this claim, instead of repenting and changing their minds about who Jesus is, what do they do? They double down. They refuse. They say, he cannot be resurrected. La, 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 la. We're not listening. He cannot be resurrected. The leaders actually tell the guards, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pay you off to spread this particular lie. They say, go therefore and tell everyone that Jesus' disciples stole his body. And if word gets to Pilate that you guys fell asleep on the job, we'll take care of Pilate. But we want you to go and tell people that Jesus, he isn't resurrected. Go and tell people that his disciples lifted his body during the night. And so that's exactly what the religious leaders do. Don't miss this. Right off the bat, like right on the heels of Jesus' resurrection, this happens. Just like the disciples are about to be commissioned as a group of messengers, we see a rival group of messengers being commissioned. Like instantly after Jesus is resurrected, and instantly after Jesus commissions these ladies to go tell the disciples the good news that Jesus is resurrected, a rival gospel and a rival message is set loose. And this means something for us. It at least means that there is always going to be a rival message to the good news of Jesus. And every time, in every age, in every place, there's going to be false stories, false good news, false messages competing for the allegiance of the nations. That's the way it's been since day one after Christ was resurrected. Be that false gods and false narratives about the way that the world came into being. Or maybe the, the less obvious competing stories. That history is on a slow, inevitable inevitable march away from religion and morality. is marching towards some utopia. You don't want to be left on the wrong side of history. Maybe it's the rival narrative that history climaxed in 1776 and everything before and after is a footnote. Or maybe it's the rival narrative that's the sort of individualistic mode of thinking. That I belong to me and my only obligation in life is to discover and give expression to my true self. That we are our sexuality and expressing that is the path to life. Like, whatever that rival narrative is, whatever that rival gospel is, it's there. And it's always been that way. But the scriptures tell us there is one gospel, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one message, one true story of the whole world. And it's this, that Jesus of Nazareth was sent by God the Father to die on the cross for the sins of his people and be raised to new life, so that whoever places their belief in him would have everlasting and eternal life with King Jesus, who reigns over all nations. Now, interestingly, today is Halloween, of course, but it's also Reformation Day. If you're familiar, yeah, some extremely online Reformed people are saying woo-hoo to that. <laughs> October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of his local Catholic church. And what he was doing was calling the church to reform itself, calling the church to restore, return to the one true gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and that we have access to that forgiveness by simple faith and belief in him. So Protestant Christians all around the world on October 31st also celebrate Reformation Day. It's a celebration of when, again, the Protestants called the church back to the true gospel of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And it's worth noting here that even from the very beginnings, there's been competitors. Verse 16, let's keep reading. Now the 11 disciples, 11, remember Judas, is no longer in the picture, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when the eleven disciples, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now Jesus tells the women to meet, uh, to tell the disciples to meet him at Galilee. If you think back to Matthew chapter four, this is where it all begins to take place. This is this is ground zero for Jesus's ministry is Galilee. In Matthew chapter four, verse twelve, we're told that Jesus withdraws to Galilee and begins preaching the message that the kingdom is at hand. That's where he begins calling his disciples. So he invites his disciples back to ground zero and says, we've gone on this, this whole journey together. and You've seen who I am and what I've come to do. We're told that some worship Jesus, but also some doubted. Now for me, this is incredibly encouraging. Because there are some disciples who, even when they see Jesus, still need affirmation. And In the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus compassionately and patiently offers that. Famously, Thomas doubts. Jesus invites him to touch and feel and see that this is for real. I think this is also noteworthy because, again, if you were, if you were making up this account, you, you wouldn't make up the fact that some of the founders of this faith doubted, that they had trouble believing in this outrageous claim. So it's also, in a sense, pointing to the legitimacy of the claims that are being made here in the gospel. And in a book that is full of and built around Jesus' teaching, it's fitting that the whole book ends with a small speech from Jesus. Verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Just like we sang about a moment ago, everything belongs to Jesus. Jesus goes into the belly of the earth, and he comes out of the grave, and he says, I stand victorious over all of it. All of it belongs to me now. I've done what the Father sent me to do, I've plundered the grave, I've defeated sin, and now I am supreme. And so the true story of the whole world is that Jesus, born of a virgin, virgin, suffered under Pilate, he's dead, buried, he's alive forevermore, and he is gathering a people to himself and will one day return to judge the living and dead and make all things new. Christ has defeated every sin and death by his blood. And he reigns supreme over every square inch of every square thing and all of square creation, squared and cubed and tripled and whatever else. All authority is mine, Jesus says. Therefore, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right, so Jesus says, I am the ruler over all things. Therefore, go to all nations, all peoples, and tell them about me and invite them to be my disciples. All right, kids. All right, kids, look up at me. All oh, kids, look up at me. There you go. Look at those bright, shining faces. Kids, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Can somebody just shout something else? To listen to God. I love it. And tell other people about God. I love it. That's right on. And be God's helper. That's exactly right. By his Holy Spirit, through it. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Tell him. Speaking in tongues, he said. (laughs) Not that kind of church, Nick. (laughs) We'll study Acts later. All right. (laughs) Okay. All right, a disciple. What is a disciple? Now, a disciple is pretty straightforward. It's translated something like a follower, student, or apprentice of Jesus. A disciple is someone who who simply says, I'm going to devote myself to learning from Jesus. I'm going to entrust myself to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to behave the way that Jesus behaves. And what Jesus says is that as Followers, students, and apprentices, one of our chief sort of goals or mandates is to go tell everybody about them and to go invite other people to be followers, students, and apprentices as well. Jesus says, Make followers of me of all nations. Jesus is not just the anointed Jewish Messiah, He's the King of all people. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And that's the best news imaginable. So go tell people, go make me known from here to the ends of the earth. You think back to when Jesus initially called the disciples three years prior to this. When they met Jesus and he invited them to be disciples, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And Jesus says, now is the time. Go. Go make disciples of all nations. In this making of disciples, Jesus includes two crucial components, we might say. First, he says we're to baptize everyone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So every couple of months, we get this big tub right here, and we fill it up, and we place people in it, and we put our hand in the air, and we plug their nose, and we say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you uh, as buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. (laughs) In baptizing people in the name of the Lord Jesus, what, what people are saying is that we are turning from false gods and false religions and false narratives and I'm allowing myself to be marked off as one who belongs to Jesus. And you know, something we like to say is that when we baptize people in the name of Jesus, every part of them that gets wet is now Jesus's, right? Every part of them that gets wet now belongs to Jesus, body and soul. Being baptized in the name of the triune God, he's marking off his people. He, people are announcing their allegiance to Jesus, to King Jesus, by receiving his mark. One way that I've thought about this is like a wedding ring, The wedding ring is a symbol that I belong to Emily, and Emily belongs to me. It marks me off as being with her. In a similar way, our baptism marks us off as belonging to Jesus. This is whose team I'm on now. And so Jesus says, go to the nations and make disciples and invite them to take on that mark on themselves. Then he also says that we are to teach these folks in making disciples. In other words, we're to show new followers of Jesus the teachings of Jesus and His word and help one another mature in those teachings, learning to walk in Jesus's way and obey Jesus' words. We're to teach them to obey all the things that Jesus commanded. In other words, we're to, as a church family, open up the Gospel of Matthew and learn from the things that Jesus says and talk about how that it applies to us as a church. This includes pressing uh, young converts into Christian maturity. This includes things like things like welcoming young couples into your home to teach them about marriage and parenting when they hit that now what, what have we done stage in the early days. This is speaking truth to one another at community group. This is texting scripture to one another when we need encouragement. These are the sorts of things that Christ himself calls his disciples to do. And then Jesus gives this promise, verse 20. And behold, pay attention to this. He says, I am with you always to the ends of the age. I am with you always to the ends of the age. Moments after this, Jesus ascends to heaven, but he reassures his followers that I'm going to be with you. Even though I'm not going to be here physically, I transcend space and time, and I will be with you by my Holy Spirit from here until forever. Always, in your coming and your going and your highs and your lows, as you make disciples of all nations and suffer loss and hardship while doing it, my spirit will be with you, Christ promises. All right, so in the fall of 2017, we looked at the Gospel of Matthew 1 through 4, a series we called Announcing the Kingdom. We said that the Old Testament, Matthew makes clear that the Old Testament is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The kingdom is here. Those prophecies are being made true in Christ. Then in the spring and summer of 2008, we looked at Matthew 5 through 7 in a series called A House Well-Built. We said, you want to have a a well-built house? You want to live a life that's well-lived and not built on sand? Well, it looks like... Receiving and following Jesus' teaching, walking in the ways of Jesus' kingdom. In the fall of 2018, we saw that Jesus went on a conquest like Joshua. But instead of, uh, instead of a conquest of swords, it's a conquest of healing and life and love and peace and miracles. The spring of 2019, we considered the good news of the gospel in these two short chapters. Jesus asked, are you are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Jesus invites us to come and find rest in him. In the fall of 2019, we looked at Matthew 13. What's the kingdom like? Jesus says, well, the kingdom is sort of like a mustard seed. It's like a a really valuable pearl. The kingdom is like a, a treasure that has been hidden in a field. In the spring and fall of 2020, we looked at Jesus' people in chapters 14 through 20, where Jesus teaches what it looks like to be a community of people about him, a community that bears burdens and forgives and brings the little Jesus people into our midst. Spring of 2021, we consider the clash of the kingdoms in chapters 21 through 25, where Jesus enters his final phase of his ministry, condemns the religious leaders. And then in the fall of 2021, we saw that Jesus offers his life as a ransom for many as the crucified king. And we read through this and we say, what a story, what a man. We see the life and teaching and brilliance of Jesus, his incredible humility and generosity, the hope-giving power of his resurrection, and we say, now what, Jesus? What would you have us to do with this amazing story? And the answer is: we go. We go. We are commissioned by the risen and reigning Jesus of Nazareth to go be and make disciples. That's what we do after having studied the Gospel of Matthew. It's amazing how almost abrupt Matthew ends. It's almost like a cliffhanger. What happens next? What are we now what, Matthew? We 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 want to know more about those days. What was it like to interact with Jesus during those days? But Matthew ends here with a great commission. Because Matthew is looking at his readers. He's looking at you and he's looking at me and he's saying, Go. Jesus is writing the rest of this story through you, the readers of this gospel. So, I think we would be reading the Gospel of Matthew wrong if we didn't go do all of this now, if we didn't devote our lives to being and making disciples. We would be reading wrongly the Gospel of Matthew. So, one thing we're going to do over the next three Sundays is we're just going to ask how can obedience to the Great Commission work itself out at TCGS? What does it look like for us to obey the Great Commission? And so, for the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about discipleship, evangelism, and missions. We're just going to talk about the Great Commission working itself out as our church family. What are some ways that we can be obedient to this call? One thing we feel like we are uh, responsible to to steward is this opportunity. Like We've studied through Matthew. When we we land with this powerful call to go make disciples of all nations, we want to make sure that we teach and lead the church well and what that actually looks like and entails. So that's going to be what we're going to devote ourselves to over the, the majority of the next month in November. So this evening, how are we to respond? I think for some of us, the response is to believe in the resurrected Jesus, to place your trust in Him, to devote your lives to Him, to demonstrate through baptism that the one true story of the world is the story of Jesus, and then live into that. Go be a disciple. Devote your life to Christ, study his word. I think others of us are respond by being challenged. I mean, it's for some of us our faith is exactly that. It's, it's ours. There's no sense of being pressed into others. And I would say what this scripture has us to do is to consider how the Holy Spirit is actually calling us to go and move towards people who don't yet know Christ, to move towards people who aren't mature in their faith and invite them into Christian maturity, invite them to know Jesus. How is the Holy Spirit right now pressing you to obey the Great Commission? Here and now, how is the Holy Spirit pressing you to go make disciples of all nations? Who is one person that is close to you but far from God that needs to hear the gospel? What would it look like to pursue that person and begin to build a relationship or find ways to communicate the gospel to them? It's our prayer that our church would own this, top to bottom, each one of us in our own way, that we would respond to the gospel of Matthew by making Jesus known. And we make Jesus known with confidence that along the way Jesus is with us, that his Holy Spirit is with us and it empowers us as we go. And one of the crucial ways that we see that and we remember Christ's presence with us is by taking the Lord's Supper. So about once a month, and at each of our family worship gatherings, uh, we, uh, towards the end of our service, we respond to the teaching of the word through receiving the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we take juice and bread, and Scripture tells us that each of these uh, is to, to demonstrate to us Christ's sustenance for us, the, the, way, that our, the way that the bread sustains and fills us is to be representative or emblematic of the way that Jesus himself sustains and fulfills us. And the way that we take the blood is to remind us of the the blood that Christ shed for our sins so that we could receive forgiveness. In the next few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and be nourished as a church on mission. The way that that'll work is after I pray, I'm going to read just a, a typical liturgy piece that we always read. I'm going to give you some space to just pause and pray and confess sins. And then after I read that portion after praying, I'm going to invite you to come forward and take the elements as you're ready. Then you'll take them back to your seat, and you'll hold it in your, in your hands for just a moment, and then I'll come up and we'll all take it together as I'll lead us through that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that you're the creator of all things, that you're the giver of all life, and that though we uh, resisted you and resisted your rule, you came to us to restore us and to restore your good world and to fix all that's wrong with everything, to make all sad things untrue. We come to you with faith and we come to you with hope. Jesus, asking that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our hope. And we ask that as we uh, consider... who the Great Commission is is pressing us towards, and as we consider what it looks like to obey the Great Commission as a church, that you would give us particular names and faces of folks to pursue, to invite into our homes, to open up our lives, uh, to to invite them into relationship with us so that they can uh, enter into relationship with you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the king over all things, and we pray that in these next few moments as we uh, take the Lord's Supper, and as we sing this this final song, Lord Jesus, that you would you would just deepen our affection for you in our hearts. I pray for these kids. I pray that uh, through these uh, through the sowing that we do here and the, the the efforts that we do here to make Christ known to them, Lord Jesus, I pray that it would take root, and that we would, we would baptize these kids, and that these kids would be raised into maturity in Christ, and that these kids uh, that you would raise church planners and missionaries and faithful pastors and faithful teachers and faithful church members and deacons and small group leaders and and, and children's ministry directors and whatever else. Jesus, I pray that you would raise that up from these kids who are here in our midst. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name.